Thank you, Steve. Well, good morning, Waterway Church. This is the first time I've preached here and probably have not met most of you and don't know most of you. Well, if you would turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5, some of you may be here and have heard this sermon before, but it's all right. I tweaked it, and it's a little bit different this time, just a little bit. I can never do the same sermon the exact same way as I did before. So open your Bibles to Luke chapter 5, and I'm going to read the passage this morning and ask for God's blessing on the Word, and then we'll get right into it. So this is Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the Word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his word this morning and plant it deep within our hearts. We bless you, Lord, and we ask that you would bless us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this account takes place on the shores of the Lake of Gennesaret, and that's more commonly known as the Sea of Galilee. That's a more familiar phrase that Luke doesn't choose to use here. But that's the phrase we know it. And the scene is Jesus is, is teaching, and the crowds are pressing in, and they're at the shore. Yet before we get to really the main part of the story, we have to ask ourselves why. Why are there so many people, probably thousands, even tens of thousands, that are just swamping the shore, surrounding Jesus so that he has nowhere to go? And you need to ask why. Why is this taking place? And you'll see that in the first verse. They are gathering there, pressing in on him in verse 1. Why? To hear the word of God. You see, Jesus' word was unlike anyone else's word. You know, when people want to speak, like myself or like Steve or anyone else that you hear, lecturers, anyone, when they, when they preach or when they speak, they usually want to include other people's, uh, like famous people or scholarly people, to back up what they say. And so they usually have a list of some people, or if you're reading a book, there's usually the footnotes with scholars to really beef up what they're saying so that they're not there out on an island just with their own strange opinion. 
But that's not how Jesus spoke. It's really not how he spoke at all. You see, in Jesus' day, the scholars were the same. They would always beef up what they were saying with scholarly people and be quoting from other scribes and other Pharisees, but not Jesus. You see, when Jesus spoke, it was him. And he spoke with power and authority, different than anyone else, because it wasn't just his opinion. Don't think Jesus was just on some island. Jesus was proclaiming the very word of God. And with that, that phrase there, the word of God, means God is the source of the word. He's the source. When Jesus is speaking, it's coming from God. In other words, when Jesus speaks, he's speaking the very words of God himself. Because Jesus is God in the flesh. And this wowed them. They didn't believe it all of them. They fully didn't grasp it, but they were hooked because they had never heard anyone speak with the voice of God before into their lives. And this is why people flocked in huge numbers to hear from someone that they had never heard before. Little did they know they were hearing from God in the flesh. There was so much authority in every single word of Jesus because every single word was God's word. And so here they are. If you could picture the scene, they're, they're surrounding him. They're pressing in. They want to hear him. They didn't have microphones. They didn't have a big screen to broadcast him on. They weren't, there was no recording that you could watch later. So you need to hear Jesus. And so Jesus is backed up to the shore. What's he going to do? Well, he's going to have a little bit of a building expansion. In verse 2, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. So he looks around and there's, there's two boats, two sturdy boats. They would each, each boat probably fit about 15 fishermen in it. They were, they were good, solid boats. And Jesus is going to get into one of the boats. And who does he ask? Look, getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And he's going to teach. Now, he already knows who Simon is, so this is not some random person. We'll get into discussing who Simon is. And so he allows him, he takes his boat, and he pushes out to the water a little bit. And most likely, um, most likely that would amplify his voice, and he has more elbow room, and so he can speak to the people. Now, what's he going to speak? What is he teaching? So we, we've talked about the word of God that comes from him, but what is it that he's teaching? He's teaching and proclaiming the good news. He's preaching about deliverance from sin and forgiveness and eternal life. You see, Jesus' voice is not just another voice. It's not just another opinion. It's not just another way to view things. It's not just ideas that you can, after hearing Jesus' words, go and um, sip coffee and discuss what you like, what you dislike about Jesus, throw away the bad parts and keep the good parts. That's not the way you're to approach Jesus when he's teaching. Jesus' words are not just interesting stories or another opinion out there. Jesus' word, as I said, is the very word of God. And in John 5, 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Jesus' words are life. 
Jesus' words have the power to rescue your soul from death and the pit of hell and grant you eternal life. You see, it's the very life of God. Not just don't think of eternal life as as a time frame where it goes on and on, but think of it as God's life. That's the real meaning of eternal life. You see, you and I don't actually possess life. Do you realize that all of our lives are just on borrowed time and they're actually God's life? You don't exist in and of yourself. You have no power to exist in and of yourself. Your life is on borrowed time. It's on a loan from God. And so if you choose to, to dibble-dabble with the words of Jesus and pick apart what you like and, and believe this here, not believe that, you're, you're a fool, really, because he and he alone is the source of life. So when you try to pick apart and then go your own way, you're going to death because your way is on a time ticker. It's almost stopped. And if you don't have the life of Christ, if you don't embrace the life of Christ, well, then all there is is death. And so here is Jesus proclaiming God's word, the voice of God, and speaking truth, speaking life into people, calling people to hear it and to believe in the one who sent him. And so he's preaching there. He's now expanded People could probably see him better, hear him better, and he's wrapping it up. Now, let's go back to Simon, since this is really the focus, part of the focus of our message this morning. Who is Simon? Because he uses his boat, and he doesn't just pick anyone random. He specifically chooses Simon. It's not by accident. Jesus doesn't do anything by accident. He didn't just happen to see the boats and happen to, at random, pick Simon, his good friend, His boat? No, he's very intentional at why he picked Simon's boat. So let's understand who Simon is. Simon is Peter. And probably for the rest of the sermon, I'll refer to him as Peter, since we're used to him being called Peter. Simon is his birth name, and later on, it hasn't happened yet, but Jesus nicknames him Peter, which means the rock, not Dwayne Johnson. He's the original rock, Peter is. This is before, though, Jesus gives him his nickname. But he's already been called by Jesus, and he most likely has been with Jesus for maybe close to a year. Jesus' ministry is about three years. Peter was with Jesus for the first year, but he was not fully engaged with Jesus in that first year. Yes, he did follow him. Yes, he went places with him. Yes, he listened to him. Yes, he would have called him his master, his teacher. He respected him. But that was not his full-time job. Not yet, anyway. Following Jesus is just what he does in his spare time, and he enjoys it, he respects him. But just like many other people, Jesus has a bunch of fans, a bunch of loose followers, but he doesn't have his specific crew just yet. Peter's on the outskirts, as, as are the other 12, really, at this point. So what does he do for his full-time job? What is Peter's main occupation if it's not following Jesus yet at this point? Well, Peter's day job is a fisherman as you can see from the text. And a fisherman was honest, hard work, but it didn't pay very well. You see, fishermen were usually lower class people, and their livelihood depended on how many fish that they caught. That should be a no-brainer, but just in case you're wondering, they have to catch fish in order to get paid. And then when they did catch fish, they were taxed heavily with the fish that they caught, sometimes up to 25% to even 40% of the catch was taxed. And they also had to pay for fishing rights and all of their gear. Those of you who are uh, small business owners, you understand some of this. 
It's not cheap to run your own business. And it especially wasn't cheap for Peter and his crew. So really, in order for a fisherman to have a good day, to have a good week, to have a good month, you had to catch a lot of fish. And you had to work hard. They go hand in hand. Some of you may know people that can just stroll into work and um, just sit down at their desk, or if it's not a desk, wherever they are, and just kind of half do the job. And yet every week they get a paycheck, they never get fired, and they almost never, almost rarely get called out. And maybe some of those people, maybe some of you here are those people, or those people really annoy you. You couldn't have, you, you couldn't have that uh, work ethic if you were a fisherman, because you had to, by definition, fish. And it was laborious. It was difficult work. And they usually fished during the night. This is why they're sitting there cleaning their nets. Fishermen usually fished at night because that's when it was cool and the fish would rise to the surface. So they were really nighttime workers. And during the day, they would fix their gear, clean their nets, and if they were lucky, be able to go home, kiss the wife, eat something, play with the kids, and sleep, take a quick nap, wake back up and do it all over again the next night. That was the job of the fishermen. And that's Peter. So an ideal day, you can imagine, is when you catch a whole bunch of fish. And worst case scenario for a fisherman is when you catch nada. You catch zero. You catch nothing. That's a day without pay. So if you're paid for five days, 40 hours, okay, take off eight hours. No pay. And there's no guarantee that the next night you're going to catch anything either. But you have to work just as hard. So if you were Peter, can can you feel the pressure a little bit? You went for a night, no pay. Boom, clock is ticking. You're hoping the next night you're going to have something. Because if not, boom, two days without pay. And who knows how often this was the case for Peter and his crew. Now, if you're Peter, Peter's known for opening his mouth, saying whatever he wants. We, we know that about Peter. Some of us love that about Peter. I personally do because it makes him so real and down to earth. He just, anything that pops in his head, he says. Sometimes Jesus rebukes him. Sometimes Jesus is like, wow, that definitely didn't come from you, Peter. That was God that revealed that to you. So if you can imagine Peter, most likely at this point, he's just like a little bubbling pot. And he's probably going to boil over soon, cleaning his nets. So picture if you're Peter. You worked hard. You got a lot of bills to pay. You, you, you're, it's a small paycheck this time or maybe no paycheck at all. And you're frustrated. But then someone comes along that you know and you respect. And they don't pat you on the back and say it's going to be okay. They say, hey, let me tell you how to do your job. That's what Jesus does. Look at verse 4. And when he finished speaking, this is Jesus, he's done. He said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now, you need to understand something. This is a little bit insulting to Peter. And I'll I'll, I'll get to that because, listen, Jesus is done. What he should do is bring the boat to shore, hop out, thank Peter and his crew for letting him use the boat and let these guys go on with their day. They have busy lives. They're tired. That'd be nice of Jesus. Or maybe even ask them, hey, how's it going? Oh, it doesn't look like you caught fish. Well, let me pray for you. Let me help. That would be something that we would probably do, but not Jesus. Because what does he tell him? Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. He's not saying, oh, wait, let's just go out here and grab your small nets, which were usually circular, and just toss them over the boat. You've probably seen many of those in in videos. And um, maybe if you've gone to Israel, you'll, you'll see those smaller nets. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Those nets did catch fish. They caught them by the scales. But Jesus is saying, no, go out into the deep water because that's where the real fishing took place. That's where the big nets 
were used. That's where you went out to get a big catch. But this is insulting. And the reason I say that is because Peter has already done that, has he not? He's already done that. He's done that all night. He wasn't sitting by the shore trying to catch a couple fish here and there. He went out into the deep water. He worked his absolute hardest, and he came back with nothing. They were fishing all night. Listen, Jesus is not calling Peter to try something new. Peter doesn't go, oh, you know what? All right, I haven't tried that yet. Maybe that'll work. Jesus is calling Peter to do something that he already completely failed at doing. And he says, do it again. Do it again. Here's a carpenter slash teacher telling Peter how to fish. Now, how does Peter respond? And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. Now, he's being respectful here. Master, maybe he's trying to keep his cool. I respect you. I enjoy you. I love your, your teaching. But you're a carpenter, Master. I mean, and you're a great teacher, phenomenal teacher. I mean, you could tell by the crowds. But, sir, we've already done that. We did it all night and we took absolutely nothing. Why do you think it would work now? Now, I'm not sure, a little bit of speculation, but if I was Peter, I would probably have a whole laundry list of excuses for why I don't want to do this all over again. I mean, think about it. They've, uh, if, you, if you were Peter, some of these, these, here are some of the excuses that Peter could have continued. Not only did they do it all night, but think about it. The fish were not going to be there during the day. They swam deep into the sea during the, the heat of the day. And that's when this is. This, this may be around noontime. It was maybe morning Jesus was teaching and probably taught for hours. And, and now it's probably noontime and, and the sun is hot and the fish are deep. You're not going to get anything when you go out to the deep. They're too deep for your nets. That's an excuse. Or what about they already cleaned the nets? They were sitting there cleaning the nets while Jesus taught. The nets are probably just about clean by now. That means if we go out, we catch nothing, we're going to have to come back, clean them all over again. And if we're lucky, take a nap, wake back up the next night, and do it all over again. You can go down the list of all the excuses that Peter probably would have had. And even just the frustration, if I was Peter, you know, I got to pay my bills, I'm upset, all I do is work and fail all the time, you think my job is easy, you're coming here telling me how to do my job, you must think I'm a failure, Jesus. Can you see it? Now, let me ask you, have you ever been upset with Jesus? They might look around and be like, we're in church, we can't, we can't say that we've ever been upset with Jesus, but just be honest with yourself. You ever been upset with Jesus? Specifically, have you ever been upset with Jesus when Jesus tells you to do something that you've already done and failed at? I'm not talking about uh, just a little whisper in your ear or something or a little dream you had. I'm talking about the Word of God. You open up the Word of God and you read it and you go, oof, I've already done that. Didn't work. Let me give you a few specifics. You open up the Word of God and love your spouse and you go, God, I tried that, she doesn't respond. Or I've tried that, he doesn't care. Teach your children the way that they should go. Okay, I've done that, they don't want to learn. Forgive that person. Yeah, I tried, nothing happened. Don't feel any better? They certainly don't feel any better. They didn't even think that I needed to forgive them because they didn't think they did anything wrong. Give your money to those in need. Give to your church. Yeah, well, I did that and I didn't see anything happen. Nothing spectacular, didn't feel better. It didn't, it didn't multiply or anything, didn't get any extra blessing. 
right? We have our excuses and we're really good with excuses. When God tells us to do something, we do it, we try it and we go, okay, sure, master, all right, I'll do that. Then we do it and go, boom, see, I did it, nothing happened. Why should I do it again? We're really good with that. I know I am. We're too good at it. But here's the, here's the secret. We're really good with all, our, all of our excuses, telling Jesus why we can't do what he has called us to do. But guess what? Jesus knows that we can't. Do you realize that? But guess what? The point isn't that you can't. The point is that he can. That's the point. He calls us not because we're able to, but because he is able to. If he calls you and you go, yep, I can do that, you go, oh, whoa, <laughs> let me humble you first. Till you say, I can't do it. Then you're ready, child. That's what Jesus does. Jesus can do what we've already so miserably failed at. So if you're in their life and you're reading God's word and it says do this, it says do this, and you're saying, I can't, you're in the perfect position because you're right about that. You can't, but Jesus can. And so Peter doesn't continue with the excuses, thankfully. He bites his tongue. What does he say? But at your word, I will let down the nets. You see, Peter has been around long enough to know who Jesus is and to see Jesus' word at work. You see, Peter knows at Jesus' word, demons flee. At Jesus' word, fevers leave. At Jesus' word, the sick are healed. At Jesus' word, tens of thousands flock to hear him and sit in awe of Jesus. Peter knows the power of Jesus' word, and he's seen it for other people. Yet at this point, he really hasn't seen it done any, he hasn't seen Jesus' word in, in a personal way yet. You know, at this point, Peter's probably realizing as, as tough and as loudmouthed as he is, he knows that, you know, he could give excuse after excuse after excuse, but he's seen the power of Jesus' word, and he's probably thinking, you know what, Jesus' word overrules my own. So don't really, maybe he doesn't fully believe Jesus. I don't think he does at this point, but he's saying, you know what, it's you, Jesus. If it was anybody else, no but because it's you, because it's your word, okay, we'll go out into the deep and we'll let, let down the nets. And so there they go. Peter and his probably had a small crew. James and John are his business partners. They don't go with them. They're, they're, not, they're not part of his crew. They're just his buddies, his partners in business. So he takes his crew and, and they go out. Now, that, remember, they're not going into the shallow water they're going out into the deep, and some scholars say that when you, you go with your big boat into the deep and you let down your, your big net, and sometimes these nets were a half mile long, and sometimes they would have a, a small little boat uh, that would just um, go out, and it would drag the net. So here's your main boat, and the small boat would drag the net, spreading it out, so as the fish are swimming, they get caught in the net, and then it comes it all the way around, anchors it to the big boat, and the big boat reels it in and dumps all the fish into the big boat. So maybe that's what it looked like for Peter. Maybe he had a smaller little mini boat. I'm not sure. Even if he didn't, he was using the big nets. This is going to be a big catch. It's not just little by little. It's a huge net. So they go out into the deep in the heart of the day to catch fish. What happens? Verses six and seven. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. What's going on here other than the obvious? The power of Jesus is on display. 
You see, Jesus didn't just have an educated guess of where the fish were. Any man can do that. Nor did Jesus just know where the fish were. Because some guys might have had a good guess where the fish were. Jesus brought the fish directly to the net. This is not a good catch. This is not a great catch. This is not a fantastic catch. This is a supernatural catch, and we're going to see that. These men, these fishermen who are experienced fishermen, have never seen anything like this before. This is supernatural. Their nets are breaking. This is such a big catch. Nobody designed nets strong enough because nobody even fathomed that you would ever catch that amount of fish. So Peter's crew could not bring in the catch. So he, he grabs his partners who are probably over at the shore, finishing cleaning their nets, and he's hollering for them to come out and help him. We'll split the profit. Just get out here. So they come, and they reel in with these other big boats, right? Two boats now. Each would hold about 15 people. And they're bringing in the fish, bringing in the fish from the catch. And now both boats begin to sink. That means there's thousands upon thousands of pounds of fish. That's actually kind of terrifying. And it is terrifying for even experienced fishermen. They've never seen this in their life. They've never even heard of stories like this before. And so they're standing there knee deep in fish with both boats sinking. Now you understand that if your boats sink, then the fish all get away. So what should happen next? If you put yourself in the story, what are you supposed to do? You're Peter. What do you do? Well, if I'm Peter, I jump out of the boat. I, I, I tell everybody else, jump out of the boat. Swim, bring the boats to shore. Swim to shore. Drag it up on the shore. Start jumping up and down because it's payday, boys. And you go to the market and you make a whole bunch of money and you launch your career in the fishing world. That's what you do. If you're a businessman, that's what you do if you're Peter, a fisherman. This is your big moment. And of course, you thank Jesus along the way. After all, this is what it was all about, right? Jesus just getting you fish. Wow, he gave you fish. Okay, that's the blessing. Now run with the blessing. But that's not what Peter does. It's not what he does at all. Look at verses 8 through the first part of verse 10. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Pause right there. Now what's going on here? Peter has seen the power of Jesus on display. Peter has just encountered the living God. He'd encountered him before, but he didn't realize it. Now he does. Peter's face to face with God himself in the flesh. You see, he's been hearing Jesus teach. He's even seen him work miracles. And he's even, but now he's had a personal miracle. And really this personal miracle is what has finally opened his eyes. You see, Jesus was not just some teacher. He was not some random healer. He was God in the flesh, the holy, all-powerful, all-knowing God. And Peter realizes this. And he's standing in Peter's boat. You see, when sinful men encounter the holy God, man is immediately aware of how sinful he himself is. 
and he doesn't stand a chance before God. What's happening here, you might scratch your head and say a little strange. It's not strange at all if you know your Bible. If you know your Bible, this is a very common response when sinful man, which by the way is all of us, we're all sinners, is in the presence of a holy God, the holy God. Let me read you a few different examples from the Old Testament when this happened. Oh, for example, in Job, when God showed up at the end of the book of Job and speaks to Job, this is what Job says at the end of the book. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job is saying, I've seen you and guess what? Now I hate myself. I'm despicable, I'm vile, I'm going to go sit in dirt and cover myself with ashes and just not say anything anymore. That's Job's response when he encounters God. Someone else. You all remember Samson? Samson had a father before Samson was in existence, and his name was Manoah. And the angel of the Lord came to Manoah and his wife and told them that they were going to have a baby. Do you know what Manoah's response when that happens? In Judges, he says, we will surely die for we have seen God. He doesn't jump up and down with the news. He goes, I just saw the angel of the Lord, which is the pre-incarnate Christ. And he goes to his wife and says, we're going to die because we saw God. Nobody lives after seeing God. No sinner can stand within the presence of God. And yet I just saw him. So I'm a dead man. If you know the story, he wasn't. But that's the response. And, and give you one more. Isaiah. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees a vision of God in his holy temple, and you know what he says? He says, woe is me, for I'm ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He says, curse me, I'm done for. This is it. Life is over. I'm a sinner. Everyone's a sinner. Just curse me, God. Leave me. Let me die because I've seen you. I've seen you. There's other examples in Scripture, but that's sufficient for, for this sermon. But you get the point? When sinful man encounters the holy God, the creator, the judge of the universe, he collapses, he trembles. He's in terror because of how beautiful and pure and righteous and holy and magnificent God is. So here is Peter, and he's overwhelmed with his sin because he realizes, I'm in the presence of God. And Peter knows, hey, if God can see the fish at the bottom of the sea, then God can absolutely see the sin deep within me. He knows it. He knows it all too well. And what's, the biggest, what, what's really the bigger problem here? The sinking boats? Because remember, boats are still sinking. They're not, they're not stopping yet. The boats are sinking. What's the bigger problem? The sinking boats where you're going to lose everything or Peter's sunken soul? It's his soul. Peter could care less about the fish all of a sudden. This rough around the edges, loud, sailor-mouthed, prideful, bossy, too big for his own shoes, Simon Peter has fallen at the knees of Jesus, admitting he's a sinner. Peter's finally realized his biggest problem in life is not having enough fish. It's not, not being able to pay the bills. His biggest problem is that he is a sinner and he's unworthy to stand in the presence of Jesus. That's his problem. 
question for you is, have you ever been where Peter is? Have you ever fallen on your knees before Jesus? Have you ever been personally overwhelmed with the filthiness of your own sin? Have you ever hated your sin so much that you just wanted to curse yourself and die? Have you ever cried out in the night because no matter what you do, your shame and your guilt will not leave you alone and you scrub as hard as you can, you do everything that you can possibly do, but you're still haunted by your sin? Have you been crushed by the unchanging presence of sin in your life? Listen, we are all sinners. We've violated the commands of the creator of the universe. We've spat in his face and we've gone our own way. Does your sin haunt you? Does it grieve you? What do you do with guilt in your life? Don't make excuses for your sin. Don't try to hide your sin. Don't try to suppress your guilty conscience by doing good deeds. And don't be simply content to live with your sin and say, I don't know what you're talking about. Acknowledge the God who created you. Acknowledge that you are a sinner before a holy God. Tell him, confess your sins to him. You've wronged your creator in thought, motives, actions, and words. You see, being a sinner is not something that we, we, we do every now and then. Being a sinner is who we are to our very core. So this is the bad news. And you're saying, yeah, it is. See, the bad news is not that you don't have enough fish. The bad news is not that you don't have a paycheck for the next week or that your car broke down or that your house is really worn down and you really need a new one, but houses right now are way too expensive or maybe your marriage is falling apart, your children are leaving you and they don't behave anymore, they don't respect you anymore. Those are bad things that are happening, yes, absolutely. But the ultimate bad news is that you and I are sinners and when you realize that and you, you realize you, you're condemned before a holy God, there's no hope because you can't do anything about that. That's who we are. There's no hope for the sinner at this point. And that's what Peter is realizing. Peter's convinced he doesn't deserve to be in the presence of Jesus. And he's right. And the best news that Peter can possibly think of is, get away from me, Lord. That's the best news Peter can think of. Get away from me, because maybe if you leave me, maybe I won't be so burdened by the guilt that I'm feeling right now and the shame that's overwhelming. Maybe, maybe it'll, it'll go away. I can't change the fact that I'm a sinner, but maybe if I'm not in your presence, maybe I'll feel a little bit better about myself and I won't feel so guilty. That's the best news that Peter can come up with. But that's not good news at all. That's just delaying the inevitable, because one day you are going to stand before the presence of a holy God. And when that comes, you will not be able to say, oh, get away from me. No, he will say, you depart from me. You will depart from the judge of all the earth. So that's not good news at all. But here comes the good news. Don't you like good news? You see, you don't, we can't really appreciate the good news until we go through the bad news. If I just give you the good news, we go, I must be amazing. No, you're not, because no, I'm not. The good news is because Jesus is amazing. Look what Jesus says. He says, do not be afraid. One of the most repeated phrases in the whole Bible. Do not be afraid. Do not fear. Fear not. Go down your list of all the different variations of that word. Do not be afraid, Peter. Yes, you're a sinner. But guess what? I came for sinners. 
I came to seek and save the lost. I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. Those who admit they're sick, they're broken, they're sinful, they've gone astray, they're trying to scrub themselves clean, and they say, I can't. And Jesus comes and says, that's right, you can't, but I can. I can, and I will. Jesus is the Savior. You see, Jesus didn't need to, to leave him. Now that, that was already going to happen if, if he didn't intervene. No, Jesus says, no, what you need is not me to leave you. That's not going to help you. It's just going to delay the inevitable. You need me to draw near to you. You don't need me to go anywhere, Peter. You need me right here. Because Jesus is the Savior. Church, Jesus is your Savior. Jesus is your life giver. Jesus is your forgiver of all your sins, past, present, and future. Jesus is your rescuer, your reconciler to God, your redeemer, your lover of your soul, your comforter. Jesus is the pursuer of your dead soul and the purpose to your meaningless life. That's who Jesus is and so much more. You see, Peter needed to see his sinfulness he needed to understand the, the condition of his soul. One commentator writes this, the very point at which the sinner feels the most alienation is the point at which the Savior seeks reconciliation. When you are at your worst, which is every day, but when you realize you're at your worst is the very moment Jesus intervenes and says, you're right, but I came to save you in your worst. And before you were even born, Jesus died for you. Peter doesn't recognize all of that at this point. One day he will, but we do. We understand why Jesus came. Jesus came to live a perfect life in our place, in our place. And then he died a death in our place, punished by God, taking the sins of his people upon himself and dying for his people. And yet that's not over because he didn't remain dead. He rose to life and he gives the very life of God to all who believe. Again, Peter doesn't fully grasp all of this at this moment, but one day he will. And he'll preach it with all of his heart. So what happens next? Jesus isn't done speaking. He says, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. He gives them a new identity. You're not going to be a fisherman anymore. You're going to be fishing for men. You're going to work for me. You used to catch fish and kill them and sell them. Nothing wrong with that, but guess what? You're not going to do that anymore. You're going to catch men and lead them to life. That's what you're going to do now, Peter. You don't get an option. You're mine now. I'm your, you, said, you said master. Well, guess what? Now I'm going to show you I actually truly am your master. You have a new identity. I've just rescued you. I've just redeemed you. You don't even fully realize all that I've done for you right now, but you will. One day you will. So you're going to come with me. And that salvation that you, you're experiencing now, even though you probably fully don't comprehend what's happening right now, you're going to lead other men so that they can have that same experience, peace with God, and so that they too can hear from the words of their creator, do not be afraid. That's Peter and his buddies. That's their new identity. So verse 11, 
And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Those boats were filled with fish, were they not? They didn't sink. They brought them safely to shore. They didn't go sell them. They didn't say, okay, hang on, wait, 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 you just blessed us. We gotta, we gotta, we, we gotta, we gotta, we worked hard for this, or at least you did. Uh, so we should, we should sell them. No, it doesn't say that. They, it says they just followed him. I, I'm imagining Peter kind of tossing the keys, even though there were no keys to the boats, but I can just picture him tossing the rights to, to the rest of his crew as he, James, and John follow Jesus and say, hey, this is yours because I'm his. They have a new master, a new job, a new life. So this morning as I close, I want to tell all of you that God is standing in your boat this morning. He's always been there. He's standing in your boat, and guess what? He's blessed you. Now before you, you say, well, I don't really know about that. I don't have that boatload of fish like Peter did. I don't have that massive paycheck that all of a sudden just came in. I'd, you can go down the list of trying to prove me wrong, but it's not true. God has blessed you. Whether you realize it or not, you need to realize it because every single thing that you have in your boat, in your life has come from God. Every dollar you make, every meal you have, your job, your spouse, your kids, your friends, your 401k, your very life that you live in the very air that you breathe is the mercy and the blessing and the gift of God on your very soul. That's all from the Lord. None of that's you. Some of us get carried away thinking, oh, that was me. No, it wasn't. Some of us can barely get out of bed in the morning. That's a testimony that you aren't in control, even though you think you are. Everything you have is the Lord's, even your life itself. It's not yours. It's on borrowed time. And so my question to you is, there's the Lord. He's in your boat. He's blessed you with this bounty in your life, and you're there. What are you going to do? What's your response? And really, church, there are only two responses. Do you simply go, thank you, Lord, I always knew I was special, you know, I, I always knew you would probably bless me, and appreciate that, I'll say a prayer to you, I'll go to church every now and then, maybe even regularly, that would be something good to do, but I'm going to continue on living my life for me, the, what I want to do, and acknowledge you when, when it's comfortable, acknowledge you when it makes sense, you know, when it's really emotional, I'll acknowledge you, but for the most part, I'm going to go on my way, I'm going to jump out of the boat, bring it to shore, get the crew, go sell it, and live my life, ultimately, for me. Is that the response that you're going to have? That's one response. I tell you, that's a failed response, because your life is on a time ticker. Your life is going to go off any day. You have no clue. So why would you waste it living for you? Because your way, apart from the life giver, only leads to death. So there's only one other response. What is it? It's my plea to you this morning. It's that you would stop living your life. You'd stop living your life and begin living Christ's life. Because there is no life outside of Christ. You need to stop going your own way and repent of your sin. Be like Peter and fall in worship of King Jesus. Forsake your life and enter into Jesus' life because Jesus is everything.
And as you continue on this journey, once he saves your soul and you've repented, you've trusted in Christ and in Christ alone, may he become more and more to you. That doesn't necessarily mean you quit your job, you, you abandon this, abandon that. No, don't, 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 don't be silly. This was a specific instance for Peter and his men and his pals. It's going to look differently because your life's going to look differently. What you do for work and, and all the, the details of your life are going to play out differently. But ultimately, who you are living for must be Christ and must be Christ alone. And every thought and every word and every deed and even in every motive, because sometimes you can do the right thing. It looks like you're doing the right thing, but you've got false motives. Everything must surrender to Christ because you are a new creation if you are his. And so may he become more and more to you each and every day and pursue him, not because of the eternal life, not because of this reward, not because of that. You pursue him and you follow him because he is who you want. He and he alone is who you need. And there is no other church. Bow with me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your precious son. And I pray that these words would go deep into our heart and that we would be willing to just abandon, abandon first and foremost our sin and, and cling to you. But then on this journey with you that we would just be willing to surrender and say, not my will, but yours be done. And there's sacrifice in it, but giving up these temporary things that are already going to perish to pursue you, the giver and the source of life itself, it's a win. And I pray that you would show us just how precious you are. And may we pursue you more and more. And may you become more beautiful to us each and every day. And as you reveal to us our sin, may we simply just cling to the grace of Christ and the forgiveness found in your precious son more and more. And it's in Jesus' precious and powerful name that we pray these things. Amen.